Adler's statement is so rich with meaning that I'm going to repeat it. It is the individual who is not interested in his fellow men, who has the greatest difficulties in life, and provides the greatest injury to others. It is from among such individuals that all human failures spring. I once took a course in short story writing at New York University, and during that course, the editor of a leading magazine talked to our class. He said he could pick up any one of the dozens of stories that drifted across his desk every day, and after reading a few paragraphs, he could feel whether or not the author liked people. If the author doesn't like people, he said, people won't like his or her stories. This hard-boiled editor stopped twice in the course of his talk on fiction writing and apologized for preaching a sermon. I am telling you, he said, the same things your preacher would tell you. But remember, you have to be interested in people if you want to be a successful writer of stories. If that is true of writing fiction, you can be sure it is true of dealing with people face to face. I spent an evening in the dressing room of Howard Thurston the last time he appeared on Broadway. Thurston was the acknowledged dean of magicians. For forty years he had traveled all over the world, time and again, creating illusions, mystifying audiences, and making people gasp with astonishment. More than sixty million people had paid admission to his show, and he had made almost two million dollars in profit. I asked Mr. Thurston to tell me the secret of his success. His schooling certainly had nothing to do with it, for he ran away from home as a small boy, became a hobo, rode in boxcars, slept in haystacks, begged his food from door to door, and learned to read by looking out of boxcars at signs along the railway. Did he have a superior knowledge of magic? No, he told me hundreds of books had been written about Ledger Domain, and scores of people knew as much about it as he did. But he had two things that the others didn't have. First, he had the ability to put his personality across the footlights. He was a master showman. He knew human nature. Everything he did, every gesture, every intonation of his voice, every lifting of an eyebrow, had been carefully rehearsed in advance, and his actions were timed to split seconds. But in addition to that, Thurston had a genuine interest in people. He told me that many magicians would look at the audience and say to themselves, well, there's a bunch of suckers out there, a bunch of hicks. I'll fool them, all right. But Thurston's method was totally different. He told me that every time he went on stage, he said to himself, I'm grateful because these people come to see me. They make it possible for me to make my living in a very agreeable way. I'm going to give them the very best I possibly can. He declared he never stepped in front of the footlights without first saying to himself over and over, I love my audience. I love my audience. Ridiculous? Absurd? You're privileged to think anything you like. I am merely passing it on to you without comment as a recipe used by one of the most famous magicians of all time. George Dyke of North Warren, Pennsylvania, was forced to retire from his service station business after 30 years when a new highway was constructed over the site of his station. It wasn't long before the idle days of retirement began to bore him, so he started filling in his time trying to play music on his old fiddle. Soon he was traveling the area to listen to music and talk with many of the accomplished fiddlers. In his humble and friendly way, he became generally interested in learning the background and interests of every musician he met. Although he was not a great fiddler himself, he made many friends in this pursuit. 
He attended competitions and soon became known to the country music fans in the eastern part of the United States as Uncle George the Fiddle Scraper from Kinsua County. When we heard Uncle George, he was 72 and enjoying every minute of his life. By having a sustained interest in other people, he created a new life for himself at a time when most people consider their productive years over. That, too, was one of the secrets of Theodore Roosevelt's astonishing popularity. Even his servants loved him. His valet, James E. Amos, wrote a book about him entitled Theodore Roosevelt, Hero to His Valet. In that book, Amos relates this illuminating incident. My wife one time asked the president about a Bob White. She'd never seen one, and he described it to her fully. Some time later, the telephone at our cottage rang. Amos and his wife lived in the little cottage on the Roosevelt estate at Oyster Bay. My wife answered it, and it was Mr. Roosevelt himself. He'd called her, he said, to tell her that there was a Bob White outside her window, and if she would look out, she might see it. Little things like that were so characteristic of him. Whenever he went by our cottage, even though we were out of sight, we'd hear him call out, Oh, Annie! Oh, James! And just a friendly greeting as he went by. How could employees keep from liking a man like that? How could anyone keep from liking him? Roosevelt called at the White House one day when President and Mrs. Taft were away. His honest liking for humble people was shown by the fact that he greeted all the old White House servants by name, even the scullery mates. When he saw Alice, the kitchen maid, writes Archie Butt, he asked her if she still made cornbread. Alice told him that she sometimes made it for the servants, but no one ate it upstairs. They show bad taste, Roosevelt boomed, and I'll tell the president so when I see him. Alice brought a piece to him on a plate, and he went over to the office, eating it as he went, and greeting gardeners and laborers as he passed. He addressed each person just as he had addressed them in the past. Ike Hoover, who had been head usher at the White House for 40 years, said with tears in his eyes, It's the only happy day we had here in nearly two years, and not one of us would exchange it for a hundred-dollar bill. The same concern for the seemingly unimportant people helped sales representative Edward M. Sykes, Jr. of Chatham, New Jersey, retain an account. Many years ago, he reported, I called on customers for Johnson & Johnson in the Massachusetts area. One account was a drugstore in Hingham. Whenever I went into this store, I would always talk to the soda clerk and sales clerk for a few minutes before talking to the owner to obtain his order. One day, I went up to the owner of the store and he told me to leave as he was not interested in buying J&J &J products anymore because he felt they were concentrating their activities on food and discount stores to the detriment of small drug stores. I left with my tail between my legs and drove around the town for several hours. Finally, I decided to go back and try at least to explain our position to the owner of the store. When I returned, I walked in and, as usual, said hello to the soda clerk and sales clerk. When I walked up to the owner, he smiled at me and welcomed me back. He then gave me double the usual order. I looked at him with surprise and asked him what had happened since my visit only a few hours earlier. He pointed to the young man at the soda fountain and said that after I had left, the boy had come over and said that I was one of the few salespeople that called on the store that even bothered to say hello to him and to the others in the store. He told the owner that if any salesperson deserved his business, it was I. The owner agreed and remained a loyal customer. 
I never forgot that to be genuinely interested in other people is a most important quality for a salesperson to possess, for any person, for that matter. I have discovered from personal experience that one can win the attention and time and cooperation of even the most sought-after people by becoming genuinely interested in them. Let me illustrate. Years ago, I conducted a course in fiction writing at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, and we wanted such distinguished and busy authors as Kathleen Norris, Fanny Hurst, Ida Tarbell, Albert Payson Terhune, and Rupert Hughes to come to Brooklyn and give us the benefit of their experiences. So we wrote them, saying we admired their work and were deeply interested in getting their advice and learning the secrets of their success. Each of these letters was signed by about 150 students. We said we realized that these authors were busy, too busy to prepare a lecture, so we enclosed a list of questions for them to answer about themselves and their methods of work. They liked that. Who wouldn't like it? So they left their homes and traveled to Brooklyn to give us a helping hand. By using the same method, I persuaded Leslie M. Shaw, Secretary of the Treasury in Theodore Roosevelt's cabinet, George W. Wickersham, Attorney General in Taft's cabinet, William Jennings Bryan, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and many other prominent men to come to talk to the students of my courses in public speaking. All of us, be we workers in a factory, clerks in an office, or even a king upon his throne, all of us like people who admire us. Take the German Kaiser, for example. At the close of World War I, he was probably the most savagely and universally despised man on this earth. Even his own nation turned against him when he fled over into Holland to save his neck. The hatred against him was so intense that millions of people would have loved to tear him limb from limb or burn him at the stake. In the midst of all this forest fire of fury, one little boy wrote the Kaiser a simple, sincere letter glowing with kindliness and admiration. This little boy said that no matter what the others thought, he would always love Wilhelm as his emperor. The Kaiser was deeply touched by his letter and invited the little boy to come see him. The boy came, so did his mother, and the Kaiser married her. That little boy didn't need to read a book on how to win friends and influence people. He knew how instinctively. If we want to make friends, let's put ourselves out to do things for other people, things that require time, energy, unselfishness, and thoughtfulness. When the Duke of Windsor was Prince of Wales, he was scheduled to tour South America. And before he started out on that tour, he spent months studying Spanish so that he could make public talks in the language of the country. And the South Americans loved him for it. For years, I made it a point to find out the birthdays of my friends. How? Although I haven't the foggiest bit of faith in astrology... I began by asking the other party whether he believed the date of one's birth had anything to do with character and disposition. I then asked him or her to tell me the month and day of birth. If he or she said November 24th, for example, I kept repeating to myself, November 24th, November 24th. The minute my friend's back was turned, I wrote down the name and birthday and later would transfer it to a birthday book. At the beginning of each year, I had these birthday dates scheduled in my calendar pad so that they came to my attention automatically. When the natal day arrived, there was my letter or telegram. What a hit it made. I was frequently the only person on earth who remembered. If we want to make friends, 
Let's greet people with animation and enthusiasm. When somebody calls you on the telephone, use the same psychology. Say hello in tones that bespeak how pleased you are to have the other person call. Many companies train their telephone operators to greet all callers in a tone of voice that radiates interest and enthusiasm. The caller feels the company is concerned about them. Let's remember that when we answer the telephone tomorrow. Showing a genuine interest in others not only wins friends for you, but may develop in its customers a loyalty to your company. In an issue of the publication of the National Bank of North America of New York, the following letter from Madeline Rosedale, a depositor, was published. I would like you to know how much I appreciate your staff. Everyone is so courteous, polite, and helpful. What a pleasure it is, after waiting on a long line, to have the teller greet you pleasantly. Last year, my mother was hospitalized for five months. Frequently, I went to Marie Petrosello, a teller. She was concerned about my mother and inquired about her progress. Is there any doubt that Mrs. Rosedale will continue to use this bank? Charles R. Walters, of one of the large banks in New York City, was assigned to prepare a confidential report on a certain corporation. He knew of only one person who possessed the facts he needed so urgently. As Mr. Walters was ushered into the president's office, a young woman stuck her head through a door and told the president that she didn't have any stamps for him that day. I'm collecting stamps for my 12-year-old son, the president explained to Mr. Walters. Mr. Walters stated his mission and began asking questions. The president was vague, general, nebulous. He didn't want to talk, and apparently nothing could persuade him to talk. The interview was brief and barren. Frankly, I didn't know what to do, Mr. Walters said, as he related this story to the class. Then I remembered what his secretary had said to him. Stamps, twelve-year-old son. I also recalled that the foreign department of our bank collected stamps. Stamps taken from letters pouring in from every continent washed by the seven seas. The next afternoon, I called on this man and sent in word that I had some stamps for his boy. Was I ushered in with enthusiasm? Yes, sir. He couldn't have shaken my hand with more enthusiasm if he'd been running for Congress. He radiated smiles and goodwill. Oh, my George will love this one, he kept saying as he fondled the stamps. Look at this. This is a treasure. And we spent half an hour talking stamps and looking at the picture of his boy, and then he devoted more than an hour of his time to giving me every bit of information I wanted without my even suggesting that he do it. He told me all he knew, and then he called in his subordinates and questioned them. He telephoned some of his associates. He loaded me down with facts, figures, reports, and correspondence. In the parlance of newspaper reporters, I had a scoop. And here's another illustration. C.M. Natley, Jr. of Philadelphia, had tried for years to sell fuel to a large chain store organization. But the chain store company continued to purchase its fuel from an out-of-town dealer and haul it right past the door of Napoli's office. Mr. Napoli made a speech one night before one of my classes, pouring out his hot wrath upon chain stores, branding them as a curse to the nation. And still he wondered why he couldn't sell them. I suggested that he try different tactics. To put it briefly, and this is what happened. We staged a debate between members of the course on whether the spread of the chain store is doing the country more harm than good. Napoli, at my suggestion, took the negative side. He agreed to defend the chain stores, and then went straight to an executive of the chain store organization that he despised and said, 
I am not here to try to sell fuel. I've come to ask you to do me a favor. He then told about his debate and said, I've come to you for help because I can't think of anyone else who would be more capable of giving me the facts I want. I'm anxious to win this debate, and I'll deeply appreciate whatever help you can give me. And here's the rest of the story in Mr. Napoli's own words. I asked this man for precisely one minute of his time. It was with that understanding that he consented to see me. After I'd stated my case, he motioned me to the chair and talked to me for exactly one hour and 47 minutes. He called in another executive who'd written a book on chain stores. He wrote to the National Chain Store Association and secured for me a copy of a debate on the subject. He feels that the chain store is rendering a real service to humanity. He's proud of what he's doing for hundreds of communities. His eyes fairly glowed as he talked, and I must confess that he opened my eyes to things I'd never even dreamed of. He changed my whole mental attitude. As I was leaving, he walked with me to the door, put his arm around my shoulder, wished me well in my debate, and asked me to stop in and see him again and let him know how I made out. The last words he said to me were, Please see me again later in the spring. I should like to place an order with you for fuel. To me, that was almost a miracle. Here he was, offering to buy fuel without my even suggesting it. I had made more headway in two hours by becoming genuinely interested in him and his problems than I could have made in ten years trying to get him interested in me and my product. Now, you didn't discover a new truth, Mr. Napoli. For a long time ago, a hundred years before Christ was born, a famous old Roman poet, Publilius Cyrus, remarked, We are interested in others when they are interested in us. A show of interest, as with every other principle of human relations, must be sincere. It must pay off not only for the person showing the interest, but for the person receiving the attention. It is a two-way street. Both parties benefit. Martin Ginsburg, who took our course in Long Island, New York, reported how the special interest a nurse took in him profoundly affected his life. It was Thanksgiving Day, and I was ten years old. I was in a welfare ward at a city hospital and was scheduled to undergo major orthopedic surgery the next day. I knew that I could only look forward to months of confinement, convalescence, and pain. My father was dead. My mother and I lived alone in a small apartment, and we were on welfare. My mother was unable to visit me that day. As the day went on, I became overwhelmed with a feeling of loneliness, despair, fear. I knew my mother was home alone, worrying about me, not having anyone to be with, not having anyone to eat with, not even having enough money to afford a Thanksgiving Day dinner. And the tears welled up in my eyes, and I stuck my head under the pillow and pulled the covers over it. I cried silently, but oh, so bitterly, so much that my body was racked with pain. A young student nurse heard my sobbing and came over to me. She took the covers off my face and started wiping my tears. She told me how lonely she was having to work that day, not being able to be with her family. She asked me whether I'd have dinner with her. She brought two trays of food, sliced turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, and ice cream for dessert. She talked to me and tried to calm my fears. Even though she was scheduled to go off duty at 4 p.m., she stayed on her own time until almost 11 p.m., she played games with me, talked to me, and stayed with me until I finally fell asleep. 
Many Thanksgivings have come and gone since I was ten, but one never passes without me remembering that particular one and my feelings of frustration, fear, loneliness, and the warmth and tenderness of the stranger that somehow made it all bearable. If you want others to like you, if you want to develop real friendships, if you want to help others at the same time as you help yourself, keep this principle in mind. Principle one, become genuinely interested in other people. Chapter two, a simple way to make a good first impression. At a dinner party in New York, one of the guests, a woman who had inherited money, was eager to make a pleasing impression on everyone. She had squandered a modest fortune on sables, diamonds, and pearls, but she hadn't done anything whatever about her face. It radiated sourness and selfishness. She didn't realize what everyone knows, namely that the expression one wears on one's face is far more important than the clothes one wears on one's back. Charles Schwab told me his smile had been worth a million dollars, and he was probably understating the truth. For Schwab's personality, his charm, his ability to make people like him were almost wholly responsible for his extraordinary success. And one of the most delightful factors in his personality was his captivating smile. Actions speak louder than words, and a smile says, I like you, you make me happy, I'm glad to see you. That's why dogs make such a hit. They're so glad to see us that they almost jump out of their skins. So naturally, we're glad to see them. A baby's smile has the same effect. Have you ever been in a doctor's waiting room and looked around at all the glum faces waiting impatiently to be seen? Dr. Stephen K. Spruill, a veterinarian in Raytown, Missouri, told of a typical spring day when his waiting room was full of clients waiting to have their pets inoculated. No one was talking to anyone else, and all were probably thinking of a dozen other things they'd rather be doing than wasting time sitting in that office. He told one of our classes, There were six or seven clients waiting when a young woman came in with a nine-month-old baby and a kitten. As luck would have it, she sat down next to a gentleman who was more than a little distraught about the long wait for service. The next thing he knew, the baby just looked up at him with that great big smile that's so characteristic of babies. And what did the gentleman do? Well, just what you and I would do, of course. He smiled back at the baby. Soon he struck up a conversation with the woman about her baby and his grandchildren, and soon the entire reception room joined in, and the boredom and tension were converted into a pleasant and enjoyable experience. An insincere grin? No, that doesn't fool anybody. We know it's mechanical, and we resent it. I'm talking about a real smile, a heartwarming smile, a smile that comes from within, the kind of smile that will bring a good price in the marketplace. Professor James V. McConnell, a psychologist at the University of Michigan, expressed his feelings about a smile. People who smile, he said, tend to manage, teach, and sell more effectively and to raise happier children. There's far more information in a smile than a frown. That's why encouragement is a much more effective teaching device than punishment. The employment manager of a large New York department store told me she'd rather hire a sales clerk who hadn't finished grade school if he or she has a pleasant smile than to hire a doctor of philosophy with a somber face. The effect of a smile is powerful, even when it's unseen. Telephone companies throughout the United States have a program called Phone Power, 
which is offered to employees who use the telephone for selling their services or products. In this program, they suggest that you smile when talking on the phone. Your smile comes through in your voice. Robert Cryer, manager of a computer department for a Cincinnati, Ohio company, told me how he had successfully found the right applicant for a hard-to-fill position. I was desperately trying to recruit a Ph.D. in computer science for my department. I finally located a young man with ideal qualifications who was about to be graduated from Purdue University. After several phone conversations, I learned that he had had several offers from other companies, many of them larger and better known than mine. I was delighted when he accepted my offer. After he started on the job, I asked him why he had chosen us over the others. He paused for a moment, and then he said, I think it was because managers in the other companies spoke on the phone in a cold, business-like manner, which made me feel like just another business transaction. Your voice sounded as if you were glad to hear from me, that you really wanted me to be a part of your organization. You can be assured I am still answering my phone with a smile. The chairman of the board of directors of one of the largest rubber companies in the United States told me that according to his observations, people rarely succeed at anything unless they have fun doing it. This industrial leader doesn't put much faith in the old adage that hard work alone is the magic key that will unlock the door to our desires. I have known people, he said, who succeeded because they had a rip-roaring good time conducting their business. Later, I saw those people change as the fun became work. The business had grown dull. They lost all joy in it, and they failed. You must have a good time meeting people if you expect them to have a good time meeting you. I've asked thousands of business people to smile at someone every hour of the day for a week and then come to class and talk about the results. How did it work? Now, let's see. Here's a letter from William B. Steinhardt, a New York stockbroker. Now, his case isn't isolated. In fact, it's typical of hundreds of cases. I've been married for over 18 years, wrote Mr. Steinhardt. In all that time, I seldom smiled at my wife or spoke two dozen words to her from the time I got up until I was ready to leave for business. I was one of the worst grouches who ever walked down Broadway. When you asked me to make a talk about my experiences with smiles, I thought I'd try it for a week. So the next morning, while combing my hair, I looked at my glum mug in the mirror, and I said to myself, Bill, you're going to wipe the scowl off that sourpuss of yours today. You are going to smile. And you are going to begin right now. As I sat down to breakfast, I greeted my wife with a good morning, my dear, and smiled as I said it. You warned me that she might be surprised. Well, you underestimated her reaction. She was bewildered. She was shocked. I told her that in the future she could expect this as a regular occurrence, and I kept it up every morning. This changed attitude of mine brought more happiness into our home in two months since I started than was there during the last year. As I leave for my office, I greet the elevator operator in the apartment house with a good morning and a smile. I greet the doorman with a smile. I smile at the cashier in the subway booth when I ask for change. As I stand on the floor at the stock exchange, I smile at people who until recently never saw me smile. I soon found that everybody was smiling back at me. I treat those who come to me with complaints or grievances in a cheerful manner. I smile as I listen to them, and I find that adjustments are accomplished much easier. I find that smiles are bringing me dollars, many dollars every day. 
I share my office with another broker. One of his clerks is a likable young chap. I was so elated about the results I was getting that I told him recently about my new philosophy of human relations. He then confessed that when I first came to share my office with his firm, he thought me a terrible grouch and only recently changed his mind. He said I was really human when I smiled. I have also eliminated criticism from my system. I give appreciation and praise now instead of condemnation. I have stopped talking about what I want. I am now trying to see the other person's viewpoint. And these things have literally revolutionized my life. I am a totally different man, a happier man, a richer man, richer in friendships and happiness. The only things that matter much, after all. You don't feel like smiling? And then what? Uh, two things. First, force yourself to smile. If you're alone, force yourself to whistle or hum a tune or sing. Act as if you were already happy, and that will tend to make you happy. Now, here's the way the psychologist and philosopher William James puts it. Action seems to follow feeling, but really action and feeling go together. And by regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. Thus the sovereign voluntary path to cheerfulness, if our cheerfulness be lost, is to sit up cheerfully and to act and speak as if cheerfulness were already there. Everybody in the world is seeking happiness, and there's only one sure way to find it. That is, by controlling your thoughts. Happiness doesn't depend on outward conditions. It depends on inner conditions. It isn't what you have or who you are or where you are or what you're doing that makes you happy or unhappy. It is what you think about it. For example, two people may be in the same place doing the same thing. Both may have about an equal amount of money and prestige. And yet one may be miserable and the other happy. Why? because of a different mental attitude. I have seen just as many happy faces among the poor peasants toiling with their primitive tools in the devastating heat of the tropics as I have seen in air-conditioned offices in New York, Chicago, or Los Angeles. There is nothing either good or bad, said Shakespeare, but thinking makes it so. Abe Lincoln once remarked that most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. <laughs> he was right. I saw a vivid illustration of that truth as I was walking up the stairs of the Long Island Railroad Station in New York. Directly in front of me, thirty or forty crippled boys on canes and crutches were struggling up the stairs. One boy had to be carried up. I was astonished at their laughter and gaiety. I spoke about it to one of the men in charge of the boys. Oh, yes, he said, when a boy realizes that he's going to be a cripple for life, he's shocked at first, but after he gets over the shock, he usually resigns himself to his fate and then becomes as happy as normal boys. I felt like taking my hat off to those boys. They taught me a lesson I hope I shall never forget. Working all by oneself in a closed-off room in an office not only is lonely, but it denies one the opportunity of making friends with other employees in the company. Senora Maria Gonzalez of Guadalajara, Mexico, had such a job. She envied the shared comradeship of other people in the company as she heard their chatter and laughter. As she passed them in the hall during the first weeks of her employment, she shyly looked the other way. After a few weeks, she said to herself, Maria, you can't expect these women to come to you. You have to go out and meet them. The next time she walked to the water cooler, she put on her brightest smile and said, Hi, how are you today? To each of the people she met. The effect was immediate. 
Smiles and hellos were returned. The hallway seemed brighter, the job friendlier. Acquaintanceships developed, and some ripened into friendships. Her job and her life became more pleasant and interesting. Peruse this bit of sage advice from the essayist and publisher Albert Hubbard, but remember, perusing it won't do you any good unless you apply it. Whenever you go out of doors, draw the chin in, carry the crown of the head high, and fill the lungs to the utmost. Drink in the sunshine, greet your friends with a smile, and put soul into every handclasp. Do not fear being misunderstood, and do not waste a minute thinking about your enemies. Try to fix firmly in your mind what you would like to do, and then, without veering off direction, you will move straight to the goal. Keep your mind on the great and splendid things you would like to do, and then, as the days go gliding away, you will find yourself unconsciously seizing upon the opportunities that are required for the fulfillment of your desire. Just as the coral insect takes from the running tide the element it needs, picture in your mind the able, earnest, useful person you desire to be, and the thought you hold is hourly transforming you into that particular individual. Thought is supreme. Preserve a right mental attitude, the attitude of courage, frankness, and good cheer. To think rightly is to create. All things come through desire, and every sincere prayer is answered. We become like that on which our hearts are fixed. Carry your chin in and the crown of your head high. We are gods in the chrysalis. The ancient Chinese were a wise lot, wise in the ways of the world, and they had a proverb that you and I ought to cut out and paste inside our hats. It goes like this. A man without a smiling face must not open a shop. Your smile is a messenger of your goodwill. Your smile brightens the lives of all who see it. To someone who has seen a dozen people frown, scowl, or turn their faces away, your smile is like the sun breaking through the clouds, especially when that someone is under pressure from his bosses, his customers, his teachers, or parents, or children. A smile can help him realize that all is not hopeless, that there is joy in the world. Some years ago, a department store in New York City, in recognition of the pressures its sales clerks were under during the Christmas rush, presented the readers of its advertisements with the following homely philosophy. The value of a smile at Christmas. It costs nothing but creates much. It enriches those who receive without impoverishing those who give. It happens in a flash, and the memory of it sometimes lasts forever. None are so rich they can get along without it, and none so poor, but are richer for its benefits. It creates happiness in the home, fosters goodwill in the business, and is the countersign of friends. It is rest to the weary, daylight to the discouraged, sunshine to the sad, and nature's best antidote for trouble. Yet it cannot be bought, begged, borrowed, or stolen, for it is something that is no earthly good to anybody until it is given away. And if, in the last-minute rush of Christmas buying, some of our salespeople should be too tired to give you a smile, may we ask you to leave one of yours? For nobody needs a smile so much as those who have none left to give. Principle 2. Smile. Chapter 3. If you don't do this, you are headed for trouble. Back in 1898, a tragic thing happened in Rockland County, New York. A child had died and on this particular day the neighbors were preparing to go to the funeral. Jim Farley went out to the barn to hitch up his horse. 
The ground was covered with snow. The air was cold and snappy. The horse hadn't been exercised for days, and as he was led out to the watering trough, he wheeled playfully, kicked both his heels high in the air, and killed Jim Farley. So the little village of Stony Point had two funerals that week instead of one. Jim Farley left behind him a widow and three boys and a few hundred dollars in insurance. His oldest boy, Jim, was ten, and he went to work in a brickyard, wheeling sand and pouring it in the molds and turning the bricks on edge to be dried by the sun. This boy, Jim, never had a chance to get much education, but with his natural geniality, he had a flair for making people like him, so he went into politics, and as the years went by, he developed an uncanny ability for remembering people's names. He never saw the inside of a high school, but before he was 46 years of age, four colleges had honored him with degrees, and he'd become chairman of the Democratic National Committee and postmaster general of the United States. I once interviewed Jim Farley and asked him the secret of his success. He said, hard work, and I said, don't be funny. He then asked me what I thought was the reason for his success. I replied, I understand you can call 10,000 people by their first names. No, you're wrong, he said. I can call 50,000 people by their first names. Now, make no mistake about it. That ability helped Mr. Farley put Franklin D. Roosevelt in the White House when he managed Roosevelt's campaign in 1932. During the years that Jim Farley traveled as a salesman for a gypsum concern, and during the years that he held office as town clerk in Stony Point, he built up a system for remembering names. In the beginning, it was a very simple one. Whenever he met a new acquaintance, he found out his or her complete name and some facts about his or her family, business, and political opinions. He fixed all these facts well in mind as part of the picture, and then the next time he met that person, even if it was a year later, he was able to shake hands, inquire after the family, and ask about the hollyhocks in the backyard. No wonder he developed a following. For months before Roosevelt's campaign for president began, Jim Farley wrote hundreds of letters a day to people all over the western and northwestern states. Then he hopped onto a train and in 19 days covered 20 states and 12,000 miles traveling by buggy, train, automobile, and boat. He would drop into town, meet his people at lunch or breakfast, tea or dinner, and give them a heart-to-heart -heart talk. Then he'd dash off again on another leg of his journey. As soon as he arrived back east, he wrote to one person in each town he had visited, asking for a list of all the guests to whom he had talked. The final list contained thousands and thousands of names, yet each person on that list was paid the subtle flattery of getting a personal letter from James Farley. These letters began, Dear Bill, or Dear Jane, and they were always signed, Jim. Jim Farley discovered early in life that the average person is more interested in his or her own name than in all the other names on earth put together. Remember that name and call it easily, and you have paid a subtle and very effective compliment. But forget it or misspell it, and you've placed yourself at a sharp disadvantage. For example, I once organized a public speaking course in Paris and sent form letters to all the American residents in the city. French typists, with apparently little knowledge of English, filled in the names, and naturally they made blunders. One man, the manager of a large American bank in Paris, wrote me a scathing rebuke because his name had been misspelled. Sometimes it's difficult to remember a name, particularly if it's hard to pronounce, 
Rather than even try to learn it, many people ignore it or call the person by an easy nickname. Sid Levy once called on a customer for some time whose name was Nicodemus Papadoulos. Most people just called him Nick. Levy told us, I made a special effort to say his name over several times to myself before I made a call. When I greeted him by his full name, Good afternoon, Mr. Nicodemus Papadoulos, he was shocked. For what seemed like several minutes, there was no reply from him at all. Finally, he said with tears rolling down his cheeks, Mr. Levy, in all the 15 years I have been in this country, nobody has ever made the effort to call me by my right name. And what was the reason for Andrew Carnegie's success? He was called the Steel King, yet he himself knew little about the manufacture of steel. He had hundreds of people working for him who knew far more about steel than he did. But he knew how to handle people, and that is what made him rich. Early in life, he showed a flair for organization, a genius for leadership. By the time he was ten, he too had discovered the astounding importance people place on their own name. And he used that discovery to win cooperation. To illustrate, when he was a boy back in Scotland, he got a hold of a rabbit, a mother rabbit. Presto, he soon had a whole nest of little rabbits and nothing to feed them. But he had a brilliant idea. He told the boys and girls in the neighborhood that if they would go out and pull enough clover and dandelions to feed the rabbits, he would name the bunnies in their honor. The plan worked like magic, and Carnegie never forgot it. Years later, he made millions by using the same psychology in business. For example, he wanted to sell steel rails to the Pennsylvania Railroad. J. Edgar Thompson was the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad then, so Andrew Carnegie built a huge steel mill in Pittsburgh and called it the Edgar Thompson Steel Works. Now, here's a riddle. See if you can guess it. When the Pennsylvania Railroad needed steel rails, where do you suppose J. Edgar Thompson bought them? From Sears Roebuck? No. No, you're wrong. Guess again. When Andrew Carnegie and George Pullman were battling each other for supremacy in the railroad sleeping car business, the Steel King again remembered the lesson of the rabbits. The Central Transportation Company, which Andrew Carnegie controlled, was fighting with the company that Pullman owned. Both were struggling to get the sleeping car business of the Union Pacific Railroad, bucking each other, slashing prices, and destroying all chance of profit. Both Carnegie and Pullman had gone to New York to see the board of directors of the Union Pacific. Meeting one evening in the St. Nicholas Hotel, Carnegie said, Good evening, Mr. Pullman. Aren't we making a couple of fools of ourselves? What do you mean, Pullman demanded. And then Carnegie expressed what he had on his mind, a merger of their two interests. He pictured in glowing terms the mutual advantages of working with instead of against each other. Pullman listened attentively, but he was not wholly convinced. Finally, he asked, What would you call the new company? And Carnegie replied promptly, Why, the Pullman Palace Car Company, of course. Pullman's face brightened. Come into my room, he said. Let's talk it over. And that talk made industrial history. This policy of remembering and honoring the names of his friends and business associates was one of the secrets of Andrew Carnegie's leadership. He was proud of the fact that he could call many of his factory workers by their first names. And he boasted that while he was personally in charge, no strike ever disturbed his flaming steel mills. Benton Love, chairman of Texas Commerce Bank Shares, believes that the bigger a corporation gets, the colder it becomes. 
One way to warm it up, he said, is to remember people's names. The executive who tells me he can't remember names is at the same time telling me he can't remember a significant part of his business and is operating on quicksand. Karen Kirsch of Rancho Palos Verdes, California, a flight attendant for TWA, made it a practice to learn the names of as many passengers in her cabin as possible and use the name when serving them. This resulted in many compliments in her service expressed both to her directly and to the airline. One passenger wrote, I haven't flown TWA for some time, but I'm going to start flying nothing but TWA from now on. You make me feel that your airline has become a very personalized airline, and that's important to me.